So friends, uh, a few weeks ago, Andy preached here on the topic of crucifixion. He was preaching from Leviticus 16, you know, the Day of Atonement, and he was discussing how the importance of the cross in our lives. He was trying to answer this question, why the cross is so special? Then a few weeks passed, and we had an American pastor, Reverend Robert Cungan, who came here, and he took on, and on, on that theme, and he actually expanded, saying how we sometimes we focus on the cross and we don't see the resurrection and its implications to our Christian living in the terms of the um, justification, the sanctification, and then the glorification. I would, also, I would like also to uh, take the opportunity to expand on that issue in one sense, because what we see next, we, yes, we see the, the, the atoning death of Christ in the cross, we see his glorious vindication in the resurrection, but what comes next? We see the ascension of Christ, his departure involved in this cloud, and he went up into heaven. So I would like to ask to explore today why the ascension is so special. And I also think that the ascension is one of the, the, the topics or the themes that are most neglected in Christian circles. We tend to look at the story arc of the gospel into, let's say, four chapters. We see the creation, and we are marveled at how God created the world out of nothing. Fiat looks, let there be light, he said, and the world came into being. We look at the fall and the, you know, the, all the consequences of the wickedness of sin that came into this world. And we look at redemption with a special passion in one sense, and we can also focus, if we zoom in into this chapter, we can think of uh, incarnation, we can think of uh, crucifixion, we think about the ministry of, of Jesus, we think about his resurrection, and we even think about the restoration, about the fourth chapter, his second coming in glory, and I think sometimes we neglect the, almost the hinge that connects these chapters, which is the ascension of Christ. And I would like us to focus here. Why? Because I think it also has uh, some very important uh, teachings that can be imparted to us. First, because we can understand where we are. In one sense, the ascension of Christ was almost the last chapter, the last milestone, the last page turned in the redemptive history. But, but mostly because of other implications and the effects of it. We see Jesus' glory being restored as he went up to heaven. We see the announcement of his lordship. We see that in doing so, he also has given us the great commission that we are to go and preach the gospel. And we see this dispatching of the Holy Spirit. So it's a theme that we need to be constantly engaging with. And I think it's very prevalent in the in scriptures. Actually, it might even change the way you read the scripture when you read it with the ascension in mind, trying to find pointers and references to it. And I think I would like to invite you for us to do that today. We go through some of these references and uh, we, we see. But first thing first, I would like us to draw a distinction. As we read, for instance, in John 13, 13, we read that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In one sense, we can conclude that Jesus descended from heaven. In his descension, in his incarnation, he came into flesh, into humiliation, and his ascension 
we can see him going back to heaven in glory and exaltation. But one may ask, because the verse also says, no one ascended to heaven. And I think one may, may ask, well, what about Elijah? What about Enoch? When they ascended to heaven as well? No, that's the distinction that I would like to, uh, to make here. That Jesus, in the, the, the sense in which Jesus is using the ascension here is different. Because these men, they were carried up. They were fetched, translated into heaven. But Jesus raised up himself on his own accord into the celestial realm. There's also another thing that I would like to say, that there's a distinction that sometimes we do in theology in terms of the ascension. We also call it the session of Christ. Session being an old word almost of for sitting. So it's the sitting of Christ on the throne, the sitting of Christ on the heavenly throne. So, we, okay, we understand what it is, but we want to apprehend the effects of the ascension and apply it to our lives today. We see that the Christ humiliation was over the ascension and his exaltation was taking place here. We see this theme of glorification and enthronement. How, how, how does that happen? Let, let's have a look. Actually, uh, the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse, you know, the John from chapter 14 to chapter 17, where Jesus is gathered with his disciples, you know, in the Last Supper, and he's talking about the kingdom. That reveals a lot about the ascension. Let's go through some of the reasons. When he, Jesus was finishing uh, some of the things that he was saying in this discourse, he says in John 17, 1 to 5, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have that you gave to me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So we see Jesus revealing to his disciples about his glorification, that he was departing, he was going to the presence of his Father. You know, in this country, we have the monarchy, we have kings and we have queens, and I don't know if you ever seen or watched the footage of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, it took place in uh, 1953, so perhaps you're not old enough, perhaps you are. But what we see is the pomp and the majesty, you know, the sheer display of opulence. You know, the, 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 the carriage that she used was actually covered in gold. It was called the Gold State Coach. It's in Buckingham Palace, so you can see. But actually, in the Museum of London, there's a similar one that you can also see. But it's, you know, it's the display of opulence. Um, everything was filled with grandeur, with splendor. Everything adorned to perfection. And when all the preparations, we took over a year, uh, were done, Elizabeth took an oath. She was anointed with holy oil, and she was invested in robes and regalia, and she was uh, proclaimed Queen Elizabeth of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. Elizabeth had ascended the throne of the UK. 
That's exactly here when we see in Acts, that's what we, we are seeing. We are seeing the inauguration of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We see his coronation. Perhaps we don't grasp this exuberant display of it when we read from this account, do we? But we must, must understand if earthly kingdoms can put up such a good display, imagine what you know, we, we can do in the celestial realm. And you know, we actually have a glimpse of it when we read in Hebrews, in Hebrews, um, the, the 12th chapter of Hebrews, we say that when the, the assembly, the celestial assembly come together, when they come into this heavenly Jerusalem, they come into a presence of innumerable angels, innumerable angels with festal gathering. Innumerable angels, festal gathering. Can you see the image? Close your eyes for a moment. Try to imagine innumerable angels of a gathering. And then I would read. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Can you see it, friends? Can you see the beauty of our Lord's coronation? And as we've read before in Daniel chapter 7, we can see all the elements of it. We see, and behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And he was given dominion and the glory and the kingdom. Dominion, glory and a kingdom. Because Christ is ascended to heaven, he is now crowned king, but not just a king, but the king of kings, lord of lords. Hallelujah. He shall reign forever and ever. His kingdom shall know no end. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ where he subjugates all of his enemies, where he makes them a footstool. He is the real king of God's own heart. Where David actually was just a shadowy figure. He was the lamb slain as we've seen here, but now he reigns as the lion of Judah. Maybe our generation, we actually witness another Coronation. You know, I'm not wishing the king, the queen, no harm, but you know, her advancing years, her lives consumed in, in service, uh, it's likely that we will see someone succeeding her. Perhaps we'll witness another display of, of this uh, power, of this eventful power, which is a coronation. But we know what, where I could, we could actually witness that every single time in coming to church, in coming to the assembly of the saints. When we come here to worship him, to, we worship the head of our church. We worship our king. We are joined, you know, in the spiritual realms. This, that is this thick layer here. But we, if you can just see by the eye of, of the spirit that we are joined by these innumerable angels in festal gathering, who are praising him, who are singing to him. He redeemed us on the cross, yes. He became our savior on the cross. But it's on the ascension where our Lord becomes our Lord. And I hope this changes the way that we worship him. That even as we gather here to worship here, that we will be aware that we are before his kingly figure. That we will be presented ourselves with a sense of respect, with a sense of 
a desire for service, a desire for praise, and that we would remove our crowns and we would crown him with many crowns, remove our crowns of idolatry and crown him the Lord of our lives. But we see other, uh, so we see this, we see this uh, theme of glory and the enthronement of Christ, his coronation, but we see other things here that we can learn from this passage because it marks the beginning of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, it seems to me that the way that the Trinity works, they are marked by different emphasis in unfolding biblical history. We see in the, in the Old Testament, we see more of a presence of the Father, then we see the ministry of Jesus, and then we see uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, of course, that see points in time where the three of them are together, as we can think, for instance, in the baptism of Christ, we see the voice of the Father, and we see Jesus, and we see the, the, the Spirit descending like a dove. But apparently they have this distinct earthly ministry, and it was ministries, and it was necessary, it seems, in the economy of the Trinity, for Christ to be ascended so that he and the Father would dispatch the Holy Spirit down to his people. And Jesus was saying, we, we read in, here in chapter, in chapter 1, verses, verse 8, that the Spirit would come and that they would, the disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come down. What is Jesus referring to? Which power is that? Which event is that? He was saying not many days from now. He is mentioning Pentecost. You know, that few weeks um, after the, 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 the Easter, we'd have Pentecost. Pentecost, actually, 50th day, so 50 days roughly after the Easter, the, the Spirit descended in power. Why? Why did the Spirit descend? What, what, what do the texts say to us? What does it say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So it's not merely to comfort them in the absence of their Lord. It's to empower him to be witnesses. This, I think this verse can hardly be overstated. Acts 1.8. If you read the book of Acts, you need to have this verse in mind. For the, the whole book is almost structured around this verse. It's, we see that there will be witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's exactly the sequence of events in the book of Acts. And what does it tell us? It tells us that the disciples received what is called the Great Commission, and they fulfilled that to perfection. John Calvin also says about this, that the main task of the church is to be the visible witness of the invisible kingdom. That's what we are called to do. That the kingdom, yes, it is inaugurated, but not yet consummated. And again, Jesus was saying this in the context of responding to the disciples, the question, aren't you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, like the disciples had been following Jesus all of this time, but they were still engulfed, you know, in the culture of the time. They were still blind in a way. They couldn't see the spiritual reality dimension of the kingdom of God. What did it change? How did it change? It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that enabled them 
to see this reality and to accomplish this great task set for them. Set for them, but set for us as well, isn't it? Shouldn't we join them? Shouldn't we join in, in obeying the Lord's command, in fulfilling this great commission? Shouldn't we join the disciples in being witness and better witness that we have been of everything that Jesus began to do and teach and is still doing in our lives, proclaiming his salvation to the ends of the earth? But now I'd like to speak, if you're not a believer, if you're not a believer in this Christ, I would ask you, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? Because we who believe, we are waiting here in this great company of this helper, of this comforter, who give us assurance of the infallibility, if I may say, the infallible promises of Jesus Christ. But you, what are you waiting for? So we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's yet another element here. And we see that the ascension of Christ brings also joy. In some ways, I think Brad was just praying before, we are unfortunate in this church, especially this time of the year, perhaps because of the nature of London, there's always people coming and going, and we're always saying goodbye. We who sit here, we're always uh, wishing that they would hope, uh, that they would come back soon, but we other ones who are waving them goodbye. Last week, yes, we had Lee, we had Bora. This week, we, we have uh, Annie, Thiago, Maria Clara. This is really sad. This hurts us, in one sense. And I think the disciples experienced that as well. In the ascension here, they were waving goodbye to Jesus. As they stood there in Bethany, they looked up, and they were seeing the Lord departing, involved the as in this cloud, in the Shekinah cloud of glory, but they were waving him goodbye. And then they would they probably remember the words because Jesus had mentioned that to him, to them before. He says, A little while and you see me no longer, and again a little while and you see me. This passage might be fulfilled in a sense in the resurrection where Jesus departed for three days and came back. But Jesus actually builds on it, builds on it, and he says, well, I will, I'm going to my father's house, and you won't be able to follow me. And this shocked the disciples. They were puzzled. They were troubled by it. How can we not follow you? We have followed you everywhere till now. But Jesus comforted them. We see it in, in John 16:20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. But he says, you will be sorrowful. So, in our lives with Christ, there will be sorrow. There will be pain sometimes. And I think when we, in light of that, when we read the verses 10 and 11, and we see this departure, and we see that the disciples were gazing on the sky, we see that they became paralyzed. They were hurt. And then to, to the point, maybe they overstayed a little bit, gazing on the sky, that two angels had to appear to get them removed. And the angels came with, you know, with words of, of consolation as well. He says, you see this Christ that you have seen going in this glorious fashion in the sky. He will come back in a light, in a light manner. But hanging there, like, remember that I've mentioned that we would read Luke as well. Let's see what happens when we read in Luke 
So Luke 24, verses 50 to 53, I'll read them. Because I think it will help us to understand what actually takes place. So Luke uh, 24, verse 50 onwards. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. Did you notice? Do you see what happens here? They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Yes, they were sorrowful, but now they had great joy. What did it change? You know, that sorrow was turned into joy. How? Was it by the word, the word of the angels who assured them of, of his return? Was it? Was it that they understood what their ascension meant to them? The fact is that the ascension was this watershed moment in their lives, and it should be in our lives as well. At one side of the ascension, they are sorrowful, troubled. At the other side, they are worshipping Christ with joyful hearts. So the sorrow of departure, you know, losing a friend, the loss, even the mourning of our beloved ones, these are terrible pains. Some are here in the church, and we as a congregation, we endure that very often. But sorrow can be turned into joy. Our Lord promised it. That all the pain, all the torment, all the agony, all the discomfort can be replaced by joy when we look at him in his glorious place and in the hope that we are going to meet him again. I actually recently, in speaking of the coronation, I recently saw an interview of one of the maids of honor. Uh, and uh, she was asked whether her marriage had been the most special day in her life. Do you know what she says? No, it was the coronation. The coronation had been the most special day in her life. And this was a recent interview. Sixty years after the event, the joy of the day was soon printed in her heart. Beautiful, isn't it? Shouldn't we do the same? Like, you know, in the, see the coronation of our king to which we are all participants and rejoice and have this profound delight. There's just one more thing that I would like to mention in closing. And I'll, I'll, I'll be very quick. This past week, uh, I was asked by a colleague, we were making conversation uh, at work, and he was asking uh, what uh, I would be doing in the weekend, and I told him that I would be preparing because I was going to uh, preach. And then, you know, in the, in the middle of the conversation, he asked me, uh, why do we need a mediator? You know, I was telling him about the mediation process. And uh, what, what, would, what, do you do, what would you respond to that? Why do we need a mediator? Can't we go directly to our Father? can we go directly to God? Well, in business, in law, why do we use a mediator? We use a mediator to facilitate the dispute, to facilitate the process, to avoid going to court, isn't it? The truth of the matter is, God has a dispute with us. 
It is called sin. No amount of good argumentation, no amount of good works of our own can settle that dispute. No amount can suffice to quench God's desire for perfect justice. And we know the punishment for sin is death. So we don't want to be judged by God. We don't, we don't want, we want to avoid that as, uh, in our own merits. We want a mediator. And First Timothy, sec, uh, in the second chapter, verse 5, it says that we, there's only one mediator between God and the mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. So, okay, how does Christ mediate us? Uh, and this is a question, actually, for the kids in one sense. You know, the Christ is a, he's very, very busy in heaven. And he has, he's so busy that he has, actually, three jobs. You know, do you know what the jobs are? So, I'm going to help you, okay? And then you try to memorize. He works as a prophet. He works as a priest. And he works as a king. So, prophet, priest, and king. So in, in, in the ascension, what we see here as well is that Christ is taking his role as this mediator, as a high priest. It will take a, a bit more for us to unpack it, but Jesus ascended into heaven as our high priest, as Jesus, the Son of God. If during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he interceded for us with fervent cries and tears, imagine now that he is on the heavenly Jerusalem. He is in the heavenly temple, not a temple made with hands, but not a timely temple, but the holy, the heavenly holy of holies. He is just there before Christ, and he empathizes with us, with our pains, with our struggle. He is interceding for us. Why is the ascension so special? Do you see now, friends? Christ has ascended in this manner this visible man exalted in this cloud of glory. He is now seated on this throne. He's dispatched the Holy Spirit to our aid. He is now empathizing with our feelings from there, interceding for us in this holy temple. But he's also preparing a place for us where he promises to take us home. Let us trust him. Let us love him, let us obey his commandments until the day when he takes us home. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have promised us not to leave us orphans, and we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that your presence is felt Oh, Lord, we would like to say that we love you. And we love you all the more because we understand the reasons of your departure. That because you left us in one sense, we can live peacefully and in the hope of your return. We thank you for your spirit, the indwelling of your spirit that allows us to proclaim your word. Help us, Lord, to be better witness of your love of your grace here and to the end of the earth. We pray in your name. Amen.